Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, a real nutritionist, and a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, this is Phil Stevens, strength coach. I run Strength Guild, amongst other things. I'm also competing in powerlifting, dabble in Highland Games, and other sports. So, And I don't know how Mike Nelson does it, because I just got done traveling, and I couldn't do it as much as you. Me either. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> yeah, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Surge, a bunch of other stuff. And yeah, I was in Costa Rica for two weeks. I was home for less than 24 hours, and I'm teaching in Illinois directly after we get off recording here. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, you yeah, know, bo- crazy. both of you guys... For Phil, it's more like serial resident, you know, how, Phil, you'll you'll go live in places and learn what you can yeah. for extended periods, yeah. you know, and whereas Mike, it's more like a weekly thing, just sampling yeah. the world kind of yeah. thing, yeah. you know, but yeah. that's good. Yeah, oh, okay. it's fun. Um, we have a topic today, everyone. We're going to talk about micronutrition. I actually don't think we've ever discussed it as a topic. Uh Every once in a while, we'll, we'll touch on – in fact, Phil was the one who actually tuned me into the if it fits your macros guys, right? And honestly, if you are one of those self-reinforcing IIFYM guys, don't listen <laughs> because, <laughs> because you're not going to get this from Twinkies, you know, what we're going to talk about today for the most part, uh, except for maybe the enrichment laws, you know, sneaking some things into the, the grains there in the flour. But um, we got a question. And we'll address that, and then we'll probably go to break a little early, uh, depending on how, what other news is floating around. But um, we'll just talk about you know micronutrients. What are they? What can they do for you as a lifter? Right? You know what makes a food a quality food? Things like that. So um, our mail came from Rich. Uh, Rich is a longtime listener. I've known him for I think 119 years now, something like that. Um, he. He just makes a comment about uh, something I had said about Dorian Yates in a recent episode. He says, hey, listening to the podcast this evening, you mentioned Dorian Yates would take large amounts of vitamin C for soft tissue repair. Did he mention how much? Was it 5,000 a day, 10,000 milligrams a day? Uh, Also, any studies to support this that you are aware of? Hope things are well with you guys. Best, Rich. Now, Rich is uh, a guy who's educated in our field, so... I don't want to bore him with the answer, but um, the RDA for vitamin C is low. I mean, it's 75 for women and 90 milligrams a day for men. Uh, Now, that's actually up from when I was an undergrad, when it was 60 milligrams a day for everyone. And then usually the the feds, like the Institute of Medicine, the people setting the RDAs, they'd throw in an extra 35 milligrams per day if you were around cigarette smoke, right? Now... Things have changed so much with all this tobacco-free everything, you know, public places. But um, I had a lot of buddies who would work as bouncers 
in bars and clubs, and they were around that kind of stuff all the time. And I would always tell them, you know, take a little extra C because you, it's sort of protecting you from all the oxidants in the, you know, the secondhand smoke that you're inhaling all the time. But um, the upper level, Rich, for vitamin C, if you've forgotten, is about 2,000 milligrams a day. So if 75 to 90 is what you need... Right, and the RDA covers ninety-eight percent of the population, so we're pretty sure you're, that's enough. That you know, and it was scurvy, you know, things like that. Um, if you get excited about it for whatever reason, the government says just don't go over two thousand milligrams a day, day in and day out in a chronic way. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't take five thousand milligrams a day. You know, I would do it in divided doses for sure because you absorb less and less if you take huge whopping single doses. But, um, you know, if you have a cold or something like that, you wanted to reduce the severity or the duration of those symptoms. There's some evidence that it might help with that kind of thing. So just don't you wouldn't go over 2000 um, per day uh, in a chronic way. So Dorian, I don't know what he did. Uh, I would assume he probably hit it pretty hard. Now, Dorian did suffer tendon ruptures, like so many enormous pro bodybuilders, right? So, but who's to say that maybe his interest in vitamin C intake, and again, I made that comment from memory, and that would have been years ago. Uh, but who's to say that maybe extra vitamin C didn't delay when his tendons let go or something like that? I mean, you know... Um, Phil and I have suffered tendon rupture too, and you know we focus on some probably some pretty decent quality food, which we'll we'll define later. So it's not just about that, right? I don't know, Mike. Did you ever rupture a tendon at all? Uh, not technically. Well, kind of, but it was due to a snowboarding incident and a broom ball incident and a mountain bike incident. <laughs> Oh, so like so yeah. all acute injury stuff, not okay. not necessarily lifting per se. Okay, like impact kinds of things. Impact stuff, yeah. Yeah, street cred, Phil. I think you might have torn the most. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm up there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so. you 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 have um, did both of your biceps let go at different times? Yep, right, left bicep, and hamstring. Okay. And the hamstring was the one that the doctor was like, "Yeah, we don't see those." He'd seen Ooh, like yeah. two of them ever. So it let go from uh, uh, up in the hip. So oh, wow. the, uh, the origin, yeah. And that, yeah, the origin and not the insertion. So let go of the origin, which is odd, I guess. So Right. Uh, well, you know, yeah. I mean, most people don't walk up to seven or 800 pounds and say, yeah, I'm going to pick that up. So Yeah, so I got a butt lift out of the deal. So it's kind of <laughs> nice. <laughs> now you're all perky <laughs> in the backside. <laughs> yeah. A nice crease right under the butt cheek oh. that kind of holds it up. <laughs> oh, that explains a lot. Sexy. Yep. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so I hope that answers your your question, Rich. Um, it is one of those things. Vitamin A and C used to be on the food labels. Uh, I say used to because it's changing this year in 2018. And I, I really believe it's because those are those were vitamins, right, micronutrients that you get from mostly from fruits and vegetables and what do we not consume in this country, right? Fruits and vegetables. So they've, they've actually yeah. bumped those off the label and replaced. They put vitamin D in there now, and I think probably for obvious reasons. I mean, if you live north of Atlanta, the CDC says you're not getting enough vitamin D. So they're kind of changing their priorities a little bit based on that. But that, make no mistake, though, uh, getting enough vitamin C is legit. And I will even sometimes – I'll take a little extra C or vitamin E – if I'm really rocked with sore, muscle soreness, uh, I've seen a little bit of data that 
like tocotrienols or vitamin E might actually help reduce the duration of DOMS, right? That, that delayed onset muscle soreness. But that's why antioxidants are very hard to interpret. We were just talking about that in class. You know, some probably good, too much could interfere with adaptations, right? Training results and stuff like that. So, um, I don't know, Mike, yeah, any thoughts? There's, thoughts there's on one that? other study, too, um, not directly on vitamin C, but it's in the title if you pull it up. It's uh, uh, from Keith Barr's lab. The lead author is Shaw, S-H-A-W. Uh, vitamin C enriched gelatin supplementation before intermittent activity augments collagen synthesis. This was an American Journal of Clinical Nutrition right around last year. And it's the only study I've seen so far that's actually looked at like gelatin or people use a lot of you know, bone broth and things like that. Mm -hmm. They're very similar amino acid structures. Um, and I did pull the full study because I couldn't remember how much vitamin C they used. And it was only 48 milligrams. So it's wow. a very tiny amount. So who knows if that was actually helping or not since, you know, it was combined in the study. So we don't have a study that looks at each one independently. Um, but what was interesting is that was one of the first studies where they showed that if you took it an hour before exercise, it did appear to help uh, actually collagen synthesis. So for athletes and clients I work with, I've been using collagen or gelatin or something like that. I've had them flip it around so they take it about an hour uh, before exercise, and that should help. Yeah, I mean, old school, typical vitamin C textbook stuff is that it helps form cross bridges, right? It, it, uh, right, you know, uh, collagen form or uh, you know, with cartilage and collagen formation, next what, what uh, hydroxylysine and hydroxyproline cross bridging for the chemist out there. But yeah, it, it would make sense that they would at least put uh, some token amount of vitamin C in there. Just it's like the way they do vitamin D and calcium together. I think you know, yeah. just to support. Um, but yeah, Add your acute, bets a little bit. The acute thing is what was most interesting of what you just said. I think like well, you could take it now. And it might actually get incorporated into your cartilage or collagen now, you know. So Yeah. Yeah. And the longer I study stuff, the more I think that kind of soft tissue stuff may be one of more the rate limiting steps, even for uh, strength adaptation, even a muscle hypertrophy. A yeah. muscle will turn over in around 90 days, which is pretty fast. Uh, collagen and soft tissue is close to like nine months. So that appears to be much more of a, a rate limiting step. Well, that would make sense with the ruptures we were just talking about. I mean, I tore my, my yeah. triceps tendon, but, um, right, and Phil, we've all talked about that before, that, you know, you can you can gain strength, you can outpace your ability for the sort of the support structures to, mm -hmm. to stand up to that kind of load, yeah. and honestly, that when you talk to a lot of surgeons, you know, that's what they'll talk about. Oh, that guy blew his pec, and I, honestly, there's a lot of talk about, like, anabolic steroids. Is, that, is it because they make you so strong so fast that you just tear out healthy tendons or is it that they they change the underlying like architecture of a tendon mm -hmm. um maybe both um but Probably why athletes use growth hormone too for more soft tissue stuff also mm -hmm. i was just talking to one of my young athletes about that kind of uh, it's a uh, he's getting strong <laughs> and i was like you know just explaining to him we're gonna have to change your training a little bit here soon because you're now getting strong enough to break things yeah. You know, so it's, it's just one of those things you got to start. That's one of the reasons training gets a little different as you get stronger. Recovery, more of an aspect of recovery going on and things like that is just literally you're you're getting to the point you can do so much damage that it's harmful. Yep. So 
It's sort of your idea about the tenure athlete, that sort of thing. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. partly, I'm sure, neuromuscular skill mm. set, but also, yeah. yeah, give your soft tissues a chance to catch up. Yeah. You know, other than so. just muscle mass. Okay. Um, I did want to offer one other little piece of news. I checked out our Facebook page. I don't want to be remiss in our Big Eats contest. Um, as far as I can tell, unless you guys want to follow up with me afterwards, Jeff Wilson, I think, will make you the winner of that. Um, he actually posted a five-layer breakfast casserole. <laughs> we all love breakfast foods. Uh, uh, it's a 1,000 calories. Uh, he put. He actually had the nutrient breakdown, the macros uh, breakdown. Um, he said he liked it for pre-hiking fuel up, but it was sausage, hash browns. There were 18 large eggs in there, Thir- 32 ounces of shredded cheddar cheese, um, those grand biscuits. Oh, those are delicious, fatty, delicious. So, Jeff, uh, send me an email, uh, lawnman7 at hotmail.com, and I'll get you something cool like a mug or mouse pad or something like that that I have on hand here. So uh, good stuff. That's good big, job, Jeff. Big eats. Yeah. All right. Uh, I mentioned that we would go to break early, but I, I don't want to be remiss if, uh, if there's other stuff going on. Is there anything else going on? No. I mean, there's some meats going on today. Oh, yeah. We got a uh, – jeez, we, we can't go on without missing this. What was it, 505-kilo squat oh. this last weekend? Yeah. So, Who did that? Uh, Vlad did 1113 pounds raw. Raw. Uh, raw. Yeah. Yeah. Holy crap. So, yeah, he squatted 505 in Australia <clears throat> this last weekend. And uh, it was hard, but it wasn't 1100 pounds hard. <laughs> so, yeah, that was hard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Cone was there, sitting in the front row, and took a video of it. So if you if you want to see it, there's a if you follow Ed Cone on his Instagram or anything, he's taking a video of it. But uh, yeah, he topped it. The uh, it's a new raw world record. So wow. amazing, amazing. Yeah, and I mean, I think God, what was the record before that? In the low thousands. So Ooh. I mean, he he crushed the, <laughs> the yeah, world a record. Huge jump. Yeah. So. And Vlad is an interesting character. If you look him up, he's he's also one of the guys. He was a an equipped lifter before, and huh. like like blew everything. So in his legs, and now he comes back and hits a five hundred and five kilo uh, wow. squat. One thousand one hundred thirteen pounds at the Pro Raw Powerlifting Exhibition at the Arnold Sports Fest in Australia. So awesome! Oh, pretty awesome. So. Especially because, like you said before, we, we tend to inch forward a lot of times. You know, like the actual numbers of the top lifters, they're not dramatically different than they were decades ago. So when you see a big jump, it's pretty rare, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you see guys like Milenichev and stuff, and that's now it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Because Milenichev comes out and squats like 1,030 and looks like he can take it for four. So and it's, people have been waiting for him to like, okay, when's he actually going to uncork one, you know, yeah. and really go, because it seems like he comes out and just does what it takes to, to win, to, to win the record again. You know, it's like, okay, when's he going to come out and really put one up? Because I mean, your career can only last so long. So you'd think sometime before you're done, you'd want to just come out and put it all on the table. True. And put up, put up something that'll last. So it'll be interesting to see what, what comes now. So mm-hmm. it's one of those deals where it's like, okay, it's possible. Now, now what are we going to see? <laughs> Nobody right. done it before. So it's like now people know it's possible to squat 1,100 pounds raw. So, yeah. Yeah. 
we were just talking about soft tissues, you know, I got to think that at some point I'm very curious as to what are some of the limits, you know, of mm-hmm. like a beginner, intermediate or advanced and, and what you can even expect, you know, yeah. I mean, what, let's say people start eventually they get toward 12, 13, 14, 1500 pounds. I, I can soft tissues ha- even handle that, you know, and again, yeah, there has to be an end game. Yeah. Know, at some point, the human structure just can't hold mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. So, but okay, uh, Mike. Anything with you? What are you teaching there as you're traveling? Yeah, so actually, I'm down here today in Illinois at the 2018 uh, nutrition conference, and it's pretty interesting. It's a lot of continuing ed for uh, chiropractors, physicians. Uh, it's open; anyone can attend. So I'm doing one on matching bioenergetics with activity using metabolic flexibility. So talking about the role of fats, the role of carbs, when should you match carbohydrates to exercise, you know, maybe a little bit on should you mismatch carbohydrates to exercise, like should you lift in a fasted state once in a while to kind of promote different adaptations. Yeah. And super wide variety of presenters from uh, Dr. Brandon Brock, my buddy, uh, Dr. Ryan, who's a functional neurologist and actually a nurse practitioner also. Uh, Steve Finney is here. I guess he's going to be talking about ketogenic and type 2 diabetes, I think. Uh, Dr. Sarah Ballantyne. Uh, yeah, so a very wide variety of presenters. A little bit more on, the, I'd say, the advanced uh, topics, so... Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun, and they've got a, a panel and roundtable that I'm on both nights, so that might get kind of crazy. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, those are fun. Um, you know, listeners, I would encourage you, if there are events that are open like that, it's fun to go to those sorts of things. You know, that oh, I, I yeah. know you said that's a, there's more advanced stuff, but if it's open to the public and you don't have to be a member of a professional group and all that kind of thing, um, they can really give you insight right those sorts of meetings like what's coming down the pike in the next five years you know it's very interesting stuff you stay ahead of the game that way so or you can yeah. just listen to us <laughs> you can listen to us talk yeah, about listen it to us too. Yeah, there you go because we're doing it anyway um okay well let's go to break then uh when we come back we're going to talk about micronutrients we'll define them we'll talk about vitamins minerals phytochemicals what makes food quality food right and what are some of our favorites so we'll be back in a little bit hey listeners this is dr lonnie lowry if you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle oh you poor meathead all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what Uh, there is a book available you could simply google crc press and lowry and what i've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book a single compendium that you can hold up and say this is why i consume extra protein this can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book. 
But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie, and we're going to talk about micronutrients. Uh, we never actually had a show on this. Honestly, I think macros, right, proteins, carbs, and fats, and the calories that come from them, that's so often the focus in nutrition. And for a very long time, that's what I like the most. I mean, when I used to, when I would teach graduate courses, oftentimes at the, at the master's level, for example, there'll be advanced nutrition macronutrients, and then a separate course for advanced nutrition micronutrients. And I always taught the macronutrients because I was most interested in protein and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and carbohydrates have gotten so much attention over the decades. I think fat is a little less demonized, at least in, in a lot of the fitness circles than it used to be. But we're going to talk about that other course that, you know, so many people don't really think about. Certainly, like, the if it fits your macro guys would be um, less focused on this, I would argue. But uh, And that is micronutrients. So let me just kind of define what these are, and we'll talk about what they can do for you. Uh, and we'll all just toss in two cents on this. But essentially, these are things you consume in small amounts, right? Micro means small. So we're talking about milligram and even microgram quantities of nutrients, not big gram amounts like proteins, carbs, and fats. So vitamins and minerals are sort of the the center stage here. Vitamins are organic, right, carbon-based, like the macros. Uh, they serve as cofactors, or what I often use a metaphor, like metabolic spark plugs. They're not the fuel, but they help you burn or use the fuel, right, the macros, in different ways. They allow your enzymes to do their thing. Um, all the millions of reactions that are taking place in your body right now for you just to sit there and listen to us. Um, the other class would be minerals, and those are inorganic, right? So oftentimes I say rocks and metals. So uh, you look at the periodic table elements, for example, you'll see calcium, iron, magnesium, selenium. They're sort of their own thing, their own elements. So they're not uh, like vitamins in that way. They're not like vitamins in a couple of ways, actually. Minerals can provide structure to your body, right, in the way that vitamins cannot, uh, like to your bones, for example, and teeth. Uh, and then they compete with each other. And I think this is something that's sort of 
you know, interesting and something you have to be cautious with if you get excited about supplementing different minerals is especially those plus two, those divalent minerals like um, magnesium, um, calcium, things like that, uh, zinc. You could start to take some of these things and they will compete with each other for absorption and transport in your bloodstream. So if somebody gets really excited about taking calcium, they might have lower iron or copper you know, absorption or transport, stuff like that. So now admittedly, I'll, I take a calcium, magnesium, zinc kind of combo, like a chelate kind of thing before I go to bed. But um, yeah, so minerals are, are the other. And then the one that rarely gets attention, except as sort of a side note at the end of the semester in college courses, are phytochemicals. Now, I tend not to say phytonutrients, but I know a lot of people say that. And Dr. Nelson, I think you, you use that term. Yep. Partly be, to me, because I understand that they're part of your nutrition, but in many ways, phytochemicals, they don't act in the, the ways that I just described vitamins and minerals, right? Phytochemicals, they're going to affect enzyme activity. They might affect uh, hormone function, you know, that sort of thing. So they act in other ways and honestly, in a lot of cool ways. But the reason we don't talk about them in college courses a lot is because there are hundreds of different phytochemicals or zoochemicals uh, that can be beneficial for health, but it's kind of hard to go down a big list unless you kind of wade through a table, you know, and that sort of thing. And, and even then, sometimes there's conflicting evidence, like Mike, you and I have talked about this before, but God, it seems like any phytonutrient or phytochemical imaginable, you could find a study that it improves carbohydrate metabolism somehow, you know, it, to the point that it's like, well, cry wolf that many times all these things can't have huge clinical relevance you know uh so and how do you does that and what method you use to determine that make it really messy too oh yeah and then we're back to the antioxidant mess which is really hard to determine i mean generally considered a good thing but you know yeah how do you determine that there's lots of ways to test antioxidant function status um so, yeah, so that's what we're going to focus on today, and we're going to do a whirlwind tour, everyone, because vitamins, minerals, and then phyto or zoochemicals, wow, it's a, it's a big class. <laughs> so we're just going to kind of talk about our favorites and, and that sort of thing. Um, let's start with the vitamins thing. We'll just do this sort of in order. Um, vitamin D, I said, are, is on food labels now, and uh, we've all discussed and seen a lot, I think, that vitamin D, um, in fact, I was just, I'm preparing a talk right now for a, a nursing conference, actually, uh, and they wanted me to talk about nutrition and um, immune status and autoimmune diseases and that sort of thing. But uh, about a quarter, maybe up to a third of people uh, in the United States, at least, are inadequate vitamin D. Um, a smaller percentage are straight up deficient in vitamin D. But it is true, about two-thirds of people are adequate vitamin D when you look at serum concentrations. It's harder to look at just vitamin D intake because there are very few foods that have vitamin D. I mean, even your vitamin A and D fortified milk, that's fortified, right? It's not normally in there. So there's not a huge list of really vitamin D rich foods. And I'll, I can let Dr. Nelson chime in on this, but that's one of the ones I'm glad is on food labels. It's been connected to muscular strength and, and testosterone levels and different meta-analyses now. But again, connected doesn't really mean causal. kind of depends on your initial levels, you know, your initial strength status and all that sort of thing. Uh, but I would say vitamin D is probably one of the most interesting micronutrient, like vitamins, 
that the nutrition nerds have been talking about lately. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Overstated or, or what? Yeah, I think it's like all things. It's you know, anytime you've got a population that's super low in something, and then you give that to them as a supplement. Most of the time, you're going to see benefits. the The tricky part then is one. What is kind of a an ideal dosage, which is not always matching the RDA, and then two, especially in the fitness world, everyone wants to take that to the extreme and be like, "Oh, well, if I just add more vitamin D, I'm going to get stronger." Well, at some point, you just see diminishing returns, um, and then even like the deficiency also depends upon which standard they're actually using to classify something as a deficiency. So the IOM standard is really, really low. So if they're using that as deficiency, yeah, you're probably not going to get rickets or anything like that. But, you know, going a little bit higher is probably going to be better. Um, but then you've got people that are super high in the other spectrum. Granted, with vitamin D, there's not really any risk of acute uh, toxicity. Um, but I have seen in a couple of testing where they've been super high. Uh, one of them was on myself. I was up near like 95 for a while. Oh. I was like, how the hell did that happen? I'm like, oh, it was winter. And so I took the same amount of vitamin D that I did the previous winter since I live in Minnesota. But I forgot to factor in the, the three trips I took to warm climates during the winter. So I just oh, kept right. taking the same amount. And it came back down, but ended up being pretty high. Um, most of newer data, I would say, if you had to put a number on it, yeah, 40 to 60, maybe 30 to 50, probably somewhere in there. I think it's going to be pretty good for Blood levels, 25 right, yeah. hydroxy status. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and of course, that's why with like that, that NHANES data that I was just talking about with roughly two thirds to three quarters of people are adequate vitamin D. I think we need to keep that in mind, too. Um, they're not going to get right quite the benefit. Like you said, replacing a deficiency yeah. ends up with such pluripotent benefits as opposed to, to, to me, it's like when you try to hyper-supplement something, it's like trying to jam a seventh spark plug in a six-beater car. There's no place for it. Yeah. It's not going to help, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And, of course, we look at serum levels of 25-hydroxy-D, like, like Mike said, because, you know, you can make thousands of units just spending 15, 20 minutes in the sun, you know, your, your face and arms. So uh, it's, it's a vitamin that's also a hormone we've talked about before. So we tend to look at uh, blood status a little bit more than – than how much people are consuming necessarily because, you know, you can get your blood levels up in different ways, not just swallowing it, you know. So um, I think we differ a little bit on how much vitamin D um, might be considered a little too much. I actually don't take more than – I take two to 4,000 units during the – you know, each day during the winter, like I use. Um, I know you'll go 5,000 or more, won't you? Is that right? Sometimes, yeah. And I've seen that – I. I think we were talking about before how, you know, different complexion, maybe redheads, things like that, their vitamin D may actually even be a little bit different too. So right. I've seen other yeah. people take, in essence, the same amount and their vitamin D levels kind of go up or down a little bit more. So I think there's more variability than what we think. So if you've got two people, right, and you say, okay, this person's at a level of 20, they both take 5,000 IUs. Some people appear to go up a little bit higher than the next person. So yep. I think how we metabolize it and things of like that is probably a little bit different from one person to the next two, which 
we don't really have a good understanding of yet. Right. And I don't want to dwell too much on vitamin D. Just that, yeah, you're right. Skin color, the darkness of your skin. So if you're a listener, if you're African-American, or you have very dark skin, uh, the literature, it's a, it sort of goes back and forth a bit. But for the most part, it suggests that uh, you might not convert vitamin D quite as readily, uh, like Mike said, as someone who's very pale and redheaded and that sort of thing. It's just that it, it sort of, you know, glasses half full, glasses half empty on one side darker skin more melanin is going to protect you from the uv light in the sun right and that sort of thing is more protective whereas the very pink person you know very fair skinned person doesn't have that kind of protection but the fair skinned person might be uh, arguably more adapted to just being in a darker more northern kind of climate right so they make vitamin d a little bit better but that still begs the question in a world where there's, you know, universal mass transport and travel and communication and people are moving all over, if you're dark-skinned and you're living in the north, you might especially want to take a look at your vitamin D status, I would think. so Because it's been linked to so many health issues, yeah. right? Not, I mean, from inflammation to uh, the immune system, to so many things. It's not just uh, the bone vitamin like we used to teach in class, so... Yeah. The last part of that, the, the downward part of that curve is relatively a high level. So it's, you know, you're going to be pretty safe unless you really go over the, the deep end, especially when, like you said, a lot of people are more on the deficient side, again, depending on what you use as a cutoff. Right. Yeah. And again, the NHANES guys, they talk about inadequate versus full born clinical deficient. Right. So right. we're mostly talking in the inadequate range with a lot of people. So, um, yeah, I already mentioned vitamin C and E and antioxidants, and, you know, they're hard to interpret. I'll, I will take a little bit uh, when I'm very, very sore. Um, now, Phil, it, Dorian was big time on the vitamin C and that kind of stuff. Do you ever – I know you're not much of a supplementer, but do you ever purposely go for, like, strawberries or citrus or anything like that? Or what? What do you, how do you address any yeah, of this kind of micro The only time I ever do, like, extra vitamin C and stuff is – if it's cold season or we're traveling or something like that, maybe it's a good idea. Yeah. Um, but other than that, no, I mean, I don't, and I'm probably behind the boat on this vitamin D thing too. Cause I just haven't gotten myself to take it, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, there was a time I did and I think I got, I think I got overwhelmed with taking too many. It's like, Oh, I got 57 pills to take today. Oh, right. And I was just like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm just going to eat, you know? Yep. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, but, I mean, at the same time, I say that, and we, we do things like we made a bunch of bone broth last night out of marrow bones and things like that. So, I mean, we're very – we think about what we're intaking in my household and try and get quality food in. Right. Yep. Um, yep. Generally buy organic vegetables and fruits and things like that. So, um, we're on a fermented food kick right now, lots of kombucha and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but other than that, no. I mean, I don't supplement with a lot of it. Right. Uh, what about minerals? Uh, when we think about minerals, um, like I said, the calcium, magnesium, zinc stuff, and I just buy it like that because it's it's essentially sold like that. Um, but I will use – I'm really after the magnesium mostly. Mm-hmm. You'll see from some surveys that people don't get enough. But to me, it's the clinical – benefits that you might get because magnesium has sort of muscle relaxant qualities mm. in fact my wife was on magnesium when she was pregnant with our with our son because she was at risk of some premature labor and that kind of thing and they wanted to keep some of those contractions relaxed right so 
uh, I have a, a bit of restless legs kind of thing, and I, it's always worse if I if I drink coffee in the afternoon or you know some stimulant type stuff. Um, so I'm usually after the magnesium, frankly. Um, that's one of the more interesting minerals. I have some interest in selenium for prostate health, but the literature goes back and forth on whether whether or not how protective it is, for example, against um, you know prostate cancer. Uh, things like that, but magnesium is one you got to be careful with. Though, if you take more than about three hundred and fifty <laughs> milligrams a day, you can, I mean, it's a laxative, right? Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. that it's toxic; it's just it's sort of an osmotic laxative, and it'll just yeah. run right out your backside. But um, yeah, I use magnesium in high quantities when I have to make weight. Mm. So <laughs> there you go; <laughs> it'll clear out a few yep. pounds real fast. Right. So yeah, uh, make, no, the trade flush <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's, uh, no, I was just reading about that this morning, though, magnesium, and I think it's something that I need to get back to taking a little more. Like, ZMA was really popular there for a little while. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've been having some nighttime cramps in my calves and things like that. Exactly. Yep. It, you know, yeah, it's probably time to start supplementing with a little bit of that again. We're coming out of a long winter here, and, you know, we tend to, I don't know, it's kind of like we just don't get as many. We grow a lot of our food. So I probably don't get as many vegetables and stuff as I need in the winter as we do in the summer. And we're carnivores <laughs> a lot right. of the winter. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely look into that. and I'm, I don't know. Uh, I'm more of a, oh, I'm starting to see some signs. I better take some type of guy instead of being ahead of the game, I guess. But It is worth pointing out, you, you talked about growing your own stuff. It's worth pointing out that some minerals uh, – like what you're getting from plants is partly dependent on the mineral richness of the soil. Like here in the Great Lakes, yeah. we're deficient in certain things in the soil in this general region. Um, so you do have to kind of keep an eye on certain minerals and because the plant's not going to ha- be abundant in them unless it's in the soil the plant is grown in. Yeah. You know, so. And I can give you tips on that. I mean, that's like, I'm sure other universities do it, but we have K-State around here, which is a big agriculture university, and they will test your soil for free. Uh, if nice. you're planning on growing something, so basically you pull up a little sample of soil and we can drive it down. There's a plant, a place, 15 a testing facility like 15 minutes from my house, and you bring it over there and they'll say, okay, you need to add this, 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 this. Uh, oh, interesting. For your plants. So yeah, they'll they'll do that for you. Most of the agriculture universities and stuff will do that for free or next to nothing for you. That's cool. Yeah. Right. As I understand, even uh, the fertilizer that's applied to mm-hmm. soils can affect like the zinc that ends up in the plants. Now, I'm going to sit down before I hurt myself because I'm not a, an agricultural guy. <laughs> but, yeah, it is worth checking. And that's that's very cool that they do that. That's a, that's a real resource then. Uh, all right, Miguel, what do you think uh, as far as interesting minerals or ones that you might seek or new science? Yeah, yeah I'd say on the magnesium, that's the one that I think most people are probably deficient in. So if I run like a little dietary analysis on what they've been eating, magnesium is almost always probably going to be low. Um, like you guys said, if you take too much, you can be running to the, the bathroom. But sometimes that's an okay thing to push people up to that a little while um, just to make sure they're getting in enough. If you're looking at more um, brain-based stuff, there's a specific form of magnesium, magnesium 3 and 8, that actually does cross the blood-brain barrier. So sometimes I'll use that. Uh, it's a little bit more expensive, uh, doesn't cause any uh, bowel issues, um, doesn't really have as much of that kind of slightly muscle relaxant form, but usually you can use a mixed form. 
Um, the cheap versions of magnesium you want to stay away from. Magnesium oxides only get to convert at like 8%. So it's really pretty much worthless. So one of the, the tricks you can use if you don't know what you're looking at in a multivitamin, just see what the two things I'll look at right away is what form of magnesium did they use and then what form of vitamin E did they use. Usually I like a, a mixed natural tocopherols for vitamin E. Mm -hmm. And if they use magnesium oxide as their main one for magnesium, yeah, odds are they're probably trying to just save money. Again, that's a super crude one, but I've, I've seen that kind of time. Time yep. and time again. Yeah. So I do like magnesium. I'm not convinced the the spray on versions that it gets through the skin. I did a whole literature search on that. If anyone wants it, they can hit me up. But there's only really two studies that have ever really looked at that, and one of them was unpublished, and the data was yeah kind of hit or miss. But that also gets messy because then you're looking at well, what test of magnesium did you use? Magnesium the blood's going to be pretty highly regulated. You know, red blood cell magnesium, maybe, but then what's, you know, your yeah. turnover rate and things of that nature. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I just like to use a pretty high quality multivitamin because I think there's so many of them that are just all interacting across the board that it seems like anytime you just try to play the old whack-a-mole thing where you're trying to greatly increase one and you run into an issue with the other one, exactly. right? So if you're taking super high amounts of zinc, you're going to start depleting copper. Right. Starts taking super high amounts of one particular B vitamin. It could, you know, start depleting the other ones because your body's trying to handle and process more of that particular one. Yep. So I think just, you know, cover your bases, take a good multivitamin, and that's going to be a, a, a good starting point for most people. Okay. Uh, one final point about minerals before we go into phyto and uh, zoo chemicals. Um, there are major and minor minerals, and there are many, and we're not going to talk about all of them. We will touch on iron in a minute in a different way, but if something's a major mineral, depending on the textbook you look at, uh, it's not major in importance compared to a minor or trace mineral, just in amount. So like um, a nutritionist might say there are minerals you need more than 100 milligrams per day. A uh, physiologist might say there's more than 5,000 milligrams or 5 grams of major mineral in your body. So that's one of the ways we define it. It's just a quantity thing because some of the, the um, minor minerals, right, like iron is not a major mineral. Uh, it's the only mineral that women need more of than men. So the RDA for the longest time for women has been 18 milligrams a day and only 8 milligrams per day for men. And that's partly because women, because of the menstrual cycle, you know, they lose iron on a regular basis. And in guys, if anything, it builds up on us. But I said I wouldn't talk about that too much. But anyway, just quick note. <laughs> Major versus minor minerals. We're not going to go down a big list. We're just this is sort of special topics. Um, yeah. The one I see people goof up there is selenium because you don't need that much selenium. And it used to be popular quite a while ago that people were taking these super high amounts of selenium, which is not going to be good for you. No selenosis, right? Not good. Yep, bad. Uh, <laughs> in fact, selenium is one of those weird ones. Now, see, here we go. But um, there are very few actual foods where you can find yourself overdosing on a nutrient but yeah. mm -hmm. weirdly brazil nuts right those really big ones yeah. in your mixed nuts Super high. you can actually end up with yeah selenosis if you were to really <laughs> eat handfuls of that stuff you know handfuls and handfuls every day yeah not okay so <laughs> let's get to the fun stuff phyto and uh, zoo chemicals let me give you a list and then you guys can just chat on how you can use and abuse any of these but some of my favorites would be like the 
anthocyanins in, in berries. I try to eat mixed berries on a regular basis. In fact, years ago when I was in Oxford, um, everybody that were, gi were giving talks that day, every single one of them, I, re I remember, to a man or woman, tried to consume berries on a fairly regular basis because of the strong the, the antioxidant effects. There's been some really cool stuff about nervous system recovery with blueberries, for example, that kind of stuff. So big fan of some of those blue colorations uh, that you get, blues and purples out of the berries. Uh, polyphenols in, in stuff like uh, coffee, right? Chlorogenic acid in coffee. Very interested in that. In fact, we're doing analysis on that right now. I've been kind of rambling about uh, in recent episodes, coffee's not just liquid caffeine. And so one of the things that I'm most interested in with chlorogenic or caffeic acids are uh, is the carbohydrate metabolism, right? I mean, back in Japan, it, Mike and I were watching some stuff. And, yeah. You know, they're really interested in some of those phytochemicals in coffee and how they enhance your carbohydrate use. Um, and I'm actually not just analyzing different brew methods for, for some of these, these phytochemicals, but also... Um, I'm going to start doing some different uh, glucose tolerance tests, some carbohydrate challenges uh, after acutely and chronically consuming coffee because uh, I want to see what nice. it does to healthy people, not just diabetics, right? Because so much of this stuff is about diabetics, but we all know that like carbohydrate metabolism is blunted when you're really rocked with muscle soreness. So I want to play with some of this stuff for our population. So uh, the food science I do as far as brew analysis, you know, there's method to the madness. I'm going to move toward physiology with it. So, um, EGCG, right, in green tea, elevating your BMR. Um, obviously, methylxanthines like caffeine and theophylline and coffee and tea, also boosting your BMR. Um, let's just stick to the plant chemicals first right now. Uh, what do you think, Mike? Uh, any interests in the some of the, the phytochemicals? Yeah, I think it's, it's super interesting. And one of the areas I've been looking into more is do certain compounds possibly help you recover from exercise, recover kind of in quotes, which has different capacities, or do they possibly mess with the adaptation, right? So yeah. there's some data to show that vitamin C in super high doses may screw with the adaptation from weight training or exercise, especially hypertrophy. But there's some other data showing that uh, possibly green tea or curcumin may enhance recovery and not necessarily mess with the adaptation. So I think most of the data that I've seen is showing that if you focus on whole foods, um, just the mixture and by nature the level that you get is going to be lower. doesn't seem to mess up anything regarding exercise recovery. Um, however, if you start taking super high doses of isolated ones, it may mess that up. But in the back of my head, I still wonder with some of the data we've seen on NSAIDs in the past, where that may be population specific, and we may have to look long enough to see what happens once we remove it. There may be like an, an overshoot. So NSAIDs in some populations, especially in older adults, which is the Trappy brothers did one of those studies, showed that it was mildly anabolic. Right. But some yeah. molecular work in younger people showed the direct opposite. So in the back of my head, I still wonder a little bit about, you know, vitamin C and things of that nature. But all that to say, possibly some things may be used to enhance recovery, possibly some other compounds, especially isolated ones in high doses, 
they kind of screw with that adaptation. Yeah, and so much of that to me is, I, I mean, I was reading a paper just this past week that was suggesting the cellular target for the antioxidant may be part of the picture. Like, is it mitochondrial sure. antioxidant versus cytosolic or, you know, those sorts of things. And uh, what you were just saying made me think about, now I mentioned anthocyanins, but there are several uh, phenolic compounds in tart cherry, right? And th yep. that gets a lot of attention for muscle soreness. My buddy Gary up in Minnesota, um, up at Winona up there, he's looked at uh, tart cherry and some of the stuff that it can do for muscle soreness and whatnot. Uh, yeah, to me, uh, that's, like I said, I'll take a little C&E when I'm really rocked with soreness. Uh, I, if that's going to blunt some small percentage of my hyper, hypertrophic adaptation, all right. I mean, if otherwise I'm going to be half damn near crippled for two days. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it kind of depends on the goal with that stuff too, I think. But Phil, let me ask you. Uh, do you go for the colorful fruits and vegetables on purpose ever? Uh, the, well, yeah, I mean, I'd say so, yeah, just because I know it's good, too. Yeah, So, right. But I also enjoy it. I mean, that's one, like, when I lived in Thailand, one of the things I loved about it was just the, in a tropical environment, always having yeah. fruits and vegetables nearby. It was amazing. You know? yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, here in the Midwest, it's like we get what's shipped in. So, all <laughs> true. <went through. laughs> so, true. Um, yeah, I mean, but I mean, I think it's for me, it's more out of an enjoyment factor than it is out of a, you know, seeking nutrients right. factor. I, I I literally enjoy them. I mean, it's one of the things that that have we've luckily like passed on to our kids. My son, like, his favorite treat is blueberries. Like, we'll pull out chocolate, but if you pull out blueberries, he's nice. like, nope, give me that. You know, he wants, Excellent. he just wants it, and you know. Damn so. right. Yeah, you know, my son uh, is like that a lot too. Like, he's rather his he has a rather rather sophisticated palate for a twenty two year old guy you yeah. know he'll go for stuff like colorful vegetables and he'll make mm -hmm. himself omelets or pasta with olive oil and all these colorful vegetables and stuff and yeah, yeah and and now don't make no mistake he'll go to taco bell and slum it too if he wants to but he knows <laughs> he knows he's slumming it you know <laughs> he knows yeah, that he's going that's the refined crap that is more like a a treat you know so yeah i don't know there's something enjoyable about it like we just spent almost a week on the road so it was nice to get home yesterday and oh we get real food again you know you just get tired of it yeah <laughs> yeah you do and there's something about just some meat and vegetables that's that can be amazing so i would say this um when it comes to home prep stuff one of the things we often warn against this is just practical lifestyle tip everybody but um if you're gonna if you want to keep the micronutrients uh, whether it's water soluble vitamins or fat soluble vitamins or some of these other things too in the food, don't boil like um, your broccoli, for example, in a giant pot of water and then discard all that green water, you know, all that stuff. Because the water-soluble vitamins will leach out into water. The fat-soluble stuff will, will leach out into fats, like if you deep-fry something. And then you discard that stuff, and you've actually leached some of the micronutrients out. So just something to consider. Sometimes, weirdly, baking soda will be used to brighten vegetables and things huh. like that, and that can destroy certain micronutrients. Oh. So, um, you know, just, I guess, food prep tidbits there. Yeah. Um, uh, let's do zoo chemicals quickly. You know, animal uh, source. So creatine, carnosine, even heme iron we really should consider, right? Because most iron people consume, we mentioned earlier, especially important for women, 
Most iron is non-heme, and you only absorb maybe 6 or 8% of that. You'll absorb 30 or 40% of heme iron because it's sort of coated in animal proteins, and your body's like, oh, I can, you know, it looks a little, a little more organic. I can absorb that better. Um, but there's that uh, B12, right, vitamin B12, um, methylcobalamin or sometimes cyanocobalamin. You're only getting B12 from animal sources, and I think a lot of people who go vegan for ethical reasons, they don't really connect, and why would they, that years ago they stopped consuming B12, so they, they end up with some kind of – they're not going to get a megaloblastic anemia probably living in the U.S. because we have folate in our enrichment laws. It can mask B12 deficiencies, but the tragedy there is your first symptom might be irreversible nerve damage. Mm -hmm. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So, Whoops. yeah, so B12 is something you <laughs> really need to consider. Even cholesterol. Uh, Steve Reichman, who taught at Kent State for a while, uh, he was looking at uh, cholesterol and how it actually might, serum cholesterol, and how it might drive gains, like anabolic you know, growth. So, mm -hmm. we often think of LDL cholesterol and diet, you know, serum cholesterol as a bad thing, you know, hence statin drugs and all that. But there's some interesting stuff that serum cholesterol could be related to mood, um, muscular gain. And he did some very compelling research with that, like training programs and people who made the most gains with a Z, right? So, animal, the animal side, we can't ignore either. I mean, uh, creatine's gotten the most attention, but carnosine, yeah. right? I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah, your body has enzymes like uh, carnosinase will break a lot of that down, but that's got muscle acidity buffering qualities, anti-glycation qualities, so you don't gum up your you know, protein machinery in your cells. Uh, Mike, what do you think? Zoo chemicals. Interesting. Do you seek any? What's up with that? Yeah, there's some... I'd say pretty interesting ones. Um, one of the ones I followed for a while is uh, L-carnitine, mm, which mm -hmm. historically has been used as a quote-unquote fat burner to shove more fat into the mitochondria. And yeah, it's definitely involved in that process, but does that mean that supplementing with it enhances that? Data's been kind of mixed, although data from Greenhouse Lab, when they gave it to subjects with a lot of carbohydrates, showed that they could increase huh. uh, the levels of it. And they showed some pretty interesting effects from that. Because I've so, seen, honestly, I think that's tissue specific because I've seen some data that was interesting. Yeah, it, it, it gets into your maybe liver, specific. but not muscle tissue where most of your mitochondria await, right? That would be my concern. Yeah, I'd have to, yeah, I'd have to check on that if they did. I think they did a biopsy, but I'd have to double check. Hmm. Um, my go-to, Ben, as we can probably get him on the show, is Dave Barr. You guys know him. He's done sure. a lot of uh, interesting stuff on that. Um the other one that I've been interested in for a while is uh, astaxanthine. Yep. It's the red carotenoid. It's kind of in the, the color of crab shells and that type of thing. It's It's got pretty interesting properties as an antioxidant. It doesn't appear to spin off as many free radicals either, which makes it interesting to me, possibly with relation to exercise. There were some older studies in animal models that it helped with the uh, CPT1 enzyme, so carnitine palmitate transferase 1, which did transition animals to use fat more as a fuel and did increase like uh, some water maze and some swim times. Unfortunately, the data so far in humans is not really that beneficial from a performance standpoint. Uh, Van Loon's lab did pretty cool human trial of it and didn't see much of an effect, but 
I think it's getting more press now for possible neuroprotection effects because uh, it can cross into the blood-brain barrier. So that may be one to, to look for. And I've used it usually before I go uh, kite boarding. Some data to show that it may help with um, huh. lowering the risk of sunburn. I'm pretty fair-skinned. Data on that. That's next. I definitely wouldn't use it as my only sun pretty much in the imagination. And then my other thought is if I get dropped out of the sky kiteboarding and knocked on my head, maybe having some of that on board may be helpful to <laughs> clean up the mess a little bit sooner. Yeah. So yeah. that's another one that's been pretty interesting. Yeah. Astaxanthin, I believe, is a, both a plant and an animal pigment. Like, I think it's an algae and some other things. But usually, yep. yeah, you think of shellfish, right? I would. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's actually uh, made as a supplement from this red Hawaiian plant is where they extract it. But you're correct. It shows up in different structures across the board. Yeah, cool. Um, well, I think that's sort of the list. I mean, we might have a whole – I'd love to have Steve Reichman actually come on and talk about – cholesterol as an anabolic agent right mm -hmm. i had sort of the the evil grin, oh, yeah. you know years ago about actually selling pharmaceutical you know grade cholesterol <laughs> specifically <laughs> for gains you know and just like shock every cardiologist <laughs> yeah. um but of course you know there'd have to be some different applications with that but honestly your dietary intake of cholesterol doesn't have a huge impact on your blood levels which is why the finally the institute of medicine you know it's been removed from a lot of the guidelines right like a lot of the old guidelines used to say eat less than 300 milligrams of cholesterol a day they really just dropped that because your blood levels just don't change much the canadians yeah. a lot of the canadians have been aware of that for a long time but we were just slower on the draw down here i think but anyway um yeah i only had two last quick comments is I can't find the study, but so maybe completely made up. But I was pretty sure that when they did a study comparing colored M&Ms to ones that were just kind of the brown and black, that people ate more of the colored ones. There you go. And the theory was that you're kind of seeking out more micronutrition. Obviously, there's not micronutrition in M&Ms, but right. that we're kind of hardwired to look for different bright colors. And if you look at like top restaurants or culinary places where they're not really that concerned about the micronutrition, they just want something that people will enjoy. Appealing. You know, a lot of times they use a lot of different colors, right? Because that just visually seems to be how we're, we're wired to make that more appealing. Yep. And then I'm not convinced that micronutrient testing is that worthwhile. Obviously, we've got some good, pretty good proximate tests for omega-3 and vitamin D and a few things like that. But I've been unimpressed so far by a lot of the micronutrition testing. I just talked to Dr. Brian Walsh about this when I was in Costa Rica. He did some very cool talks down there, and he did a whole analysis in that too, and that was kind of his conclusion also. So I don't know if there's really a good test that we can use to determine if someone's like super low. So just increasing more micronutrition is going to be a better thing. All right. Sounds good. Well, again, that's select topics, right? We're not going to touch on <laughs> everything micronutrient in an oh, hour, but yeah. I think that's some fun stuff, and, uh, applicable stuff, nervous system recovery, muscle soreness. I mean, carbohydrate metabolism, basal metabolic rate, uh, how they work, what they are. So, okay. I guess people a good starting point to, to yeah. hop in. Right. Right on. All right, fellas. Well, that's all I've got. Until next week. Sounds good, guys. See ya. Later.
Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.